the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machine Up Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Terry and Taylor Adkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guests today, just consider tossing us um, a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. And we are very excited to bring a discussion with Leon S. Brenner, who is the author of The Autistic Subject, on the threshold of language, which has just come out this year in the Lacan Paul Grape series. Leon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very all excited. the way from Berlin. Yes, all the way, all the way, from, from, yes. all the way from Berlin. <laughs> That's true. We might have to thank Alfonso for, uh, I think he's sort of responsible. I remember, I don't even know, know who Alfonso is, Leon. Of but course he, I uh, know who Alfonso is. So he's wearing these t-shirts. I thought <laughs> ah, he's gotcha. making them. Gotcha. And he's made so his he, own too, I think. Yes, yes, yes. Because I do remember, I do recall via posting, someone had asked if there was a book that dealt with capitalism and autism. And mm. he said, oh, he mentioned your book. There you go. And so that's how we became aware of you. And like I mentioned, you you know, you reached out to us, but I, it was in my queue to reach out to you. So just so you know that. Okay, I'll thank him. I'll make sure to thank him. <laughs> He hopped in with us on some of the machine unconscious happy hour discussions that of we course. did. And so it was a, a good friend of ours too. Of course. Yes. I've met him in Pittsburgh uh, two years ago. Very nice. I haven't talked to him in a while, but, but he's, he's a really good guy and he's got, he's got thousands of Lacan books. I will say that <laughs> it's got an impressive library. So uh, yes. Leon, do you want to, do you want to re recapitulate just a little bit for the audience, how you got into these subjects, whether it be Lacan and, and autism, before we, we dive into the, into the work, would you like to tell us just a little bit about your background and, and your interests and uh, your happy accident? <laughs> yes, of course. Well, getting into Lacan was an accident for me, as I told you, um, it uh, has been an outcome of me forgetting to pay the tuition for the university, being unable to select the courses that I was intending to select, and then being left with this uh, strange course uh, on Lacan. Nobody took it. And uh, well, it was uh, a beautiful love story starting from that point. But I think that uh, the major point with Lacan, and you see that also in the course of a Lacanian analysis, is the fact that the analyst will never answer the analysis demand for love. And in this sense, this frustration is a driving force, is a precursor for desire. And in, this is what happened for me with Lacan, because I was reading Freud from a very early age and studying psychology with, well, maybe not with Freud, but with his followers, you get to a certain point of acquaintance with the text and the theory, I think, that provides you with a certain satisfaction, which is deadly, right? <laughs> and, and with Lacan, the satisfaction 
satisfaction is very different. One might say the satisfaction is achieved not when the aim corresponds with the object, but when you keep on revolving around this impossible object to comprehend. And this provides you with a different form of satisfaction. <laughs> you can say I'm an addict since I've started and I've been doing that for many, many years. And um, the question of autism just uh, popped up in my life, again, accidentally listening to some podcast. I've been doing some volunteer work myself, and um, I started asking myself, oh, maybe we can say something interesting about that in psychoanalysis. And there are scholars of autism in the history of psychoanalysis. Some of them are extremely interesting. But then I was, I was already, um, let's say, uh, convinced as to the uh, usefulness of Lacan's teaching. And I was searching for something that he said about it. And you know, Lacan barely said anything about autism, at least not explicitly, because it's interesting. He does discuss some cases that mm -hmm. in retrospect today, we know or we consider to be cases of autism, like the case of Little Dick, a very fortunate name for a case <laughs> uh, that you can see uh, uh, Melanie Klein provides. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for instance, he, he talked about that and he talks about another case that is called uh, the case of the wolf child, not right. to be confused with the wolf man. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, from this uh, writer called uh, Rosine Lefort. And both cases are discussed as cases of psychosis in his seminars. But he says also, this is a very strange psychosis. He even says explicitly, we might have to rethink it. But today mm -hmm. we know in retrospect that these are glimpses into Lacan's theory on autism. But basically, Lacan said a few things about autism explicitly, and it was in the U.S., actually in a conference in the U.S. And, um, well, the inspiring quote, one might say, is that, uh, well, he was asked by one of the members in the audience, well, you know, we, we try and speak to autistic people, but it seems that they not, do not communicate in a way that can be said to be linguistic. Right. Uh, let's say. And uh, Lacan says, well, you know, that the fact that they do not answer to you uh, when you approach them through your, let's say, perspective of care does not mean that they are not rather verbose. This is yes. the uh, translation. That's an in interesting translation. But in fact, he, he is just insisting, and I think this is the one of the uh, ethical pillars of Lacanian psychoanalysis is the insistence that, you know, autistic people are subjects. In this sense, they are subjects of language. And maybe they uh, don't uh, use language in the same way that, uh, let's say, an erotic person would do. They are still disposed to the use of language and in this sense are subjects of language. And also, in this sense, are viable participants in the psychoanalytic experience. So I think in this, in this short sentence, Lacan opened up the possibility to speak about autism psychoanalytically, but also provided us with a certain imperative to work with autistic people in the psychoanalytic clinic. So I saw that and found some other secondary literature written, unfortunately, mostly in French. Mm -hmm. um, well, French is a beautiful language, so maybe not unfortunately, but for <laughs> the uh, people who are strictly English speakers, it's, it's not accessible. But I was exposed to this um, diversity of thoughts and thinkers and eventually decided to contribute something uh, of my own into the debate. What I think is interesting, I mean, a lot of what you said is interesting. I'll focus on, I guess, several points. One of the 
questions. One of the one of the points you brought up that was interesting to me was this notion that Lacan is saying perhaps with the wolf child psychosis doesn't quite stick or, or apply or it has to be reconsidered. Is this partly I think you you laid this out early on in the book, but this notion that for the longest time autism and psychosis had been sort of conflated or that sometimes autism was uh, described as childhood psychosis. Is that, is that part of the, maybe the, the, the mixing or the muddling of terms that, that Lacan is, 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 is trying to point out? Yes, exactly. Um, this is uh, when you, when you read the, the history of, of autism, which should be a title for a book. Uh, that was the first <laughs> title go. I there was you. thinking. Uh, there you go. Uh, Yes. In my, in my uh, doctoral dissertation, I, I wrote about uh, Foucault, Derrida, and autism a little bit. Okay. And uh, the idea was to think, to call it the history of autism in the age of psychosis. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe the next book. Let's, let's keep it for the next book. But when you read the history of, of autism, you see that uh, this term was invented by Bloira. It, that was um, early 20th century, and he used this to describe uh, a form of psychosis that he um, tried to conceptualize. It was a psychosis that uh, we can say basically was quite severe, and let's say the onset of this psychosis was early in life. So Reuler used this term, and Freud was actually not happy with it. Right, uh, he, yeah, he, he, he was saying, well, he is using the term autism instead of autoerotism because he wants yes. to take out the sexual component uh, from the equation. He was calling him a prude in a way. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, psychoanalytic prude. But from that point, psychoanalysts that engaged with this kind of psychosis, which is a psychosis that triggers very early in life, and they call it childhood psychosis. And as uh, the year progresses, some theorists start calling it autism or autistic stage or autistic behavior, borrowing from Bloida. And actually, we, we owe the term autism, or let's say at least considering autism as a distinct psychological syndrome, to a psychologist, to Leo Kanner, who... Right. Uh, was the first one who, who insisted, well, this is a unique psychological syndrome and I call this autism, right? But in the field of psychoanalysis, we see this conflation between psychosis and, and autism. And it's not for nothing, you know, there, there are many similarities, especially on the level of, of symptomatic manifestations in terms of uh, alteration in the use of language, um, sort of uh, uh, unique bodily experiences, mm -hmm. um, there are many similarities on the level of the uh, deformation of symptoms. And also there are similarities, we can say structural similarities as well. Right? And you know, in, in the book, I try and provide a convincing uh, account of the distinction between the two. But I do have colleagues, which I very much appreciate, uh, that think otherwise, that um, view autism as a form of psychosis still and find it useful in their practice. So I think it's, uh, the book is trying to uh, provide an answer to this question, but I think that today it is still an open question. Mm -hmm. Hmm? What I thought was, well, first of all, I would say to Freud, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I remember the quote you have in the book about how Freud doesn't mind certain heresies, but it's this, it's the prudishness that, that he, as you pointed out, that, that he kind of, 
finds more annoying. But, you know, it, 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 you also point out that, that just in the in the Greek term autos, right, meaning self, there is some there is something there etymologically that kind of points to at least a certain cluster of the of the symptoms. Right. That that mm-hmm. that, that you've laid out, uh, I guess. I was also fascinated with one of the things that you begin and end your your book with is a kind of I really like this call for especially in literature like the the DSM for example and the um, and also you you mentioned what the um, I guess you could say there's the APA but there's also the I forget what what does ABA stand for the, a type of approach. Um, but in, in any case, you're you're one of the things you you want to combat is this means by which, especially scientists, define autism negatively. Can you say something about the affirmative, positive aspect of your position? Yeah, right. It's let's say the perspective that I uh, put out in the book is um, subversive uh, to two discourses on autism. You've mentioned the scientific one, that's true. And also the one that is, we can call it the identitarian one. Okay. From the perspective of science, autism is considered to be a developmental disorder, a disorder in the development of social communication skills. Also, we have restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior. This is how you find the description of autism in the DSM, for instance. And Again, I, I am not completely going against this perspective. Right? There, is, there are some important aspects to it. For mm-hmm. instance, for scientists, autism is a knowledge-independent entity in the right. world. Right? It's not uh, something that we invented uh, or a social construct or something like that. It's something that has been affecting humans before it was discovered and spoken about and then uh, slowly elaborated using scientific tools, you know, asking questions about this entity. What is it? Is it psychological, physiological, genetic, etc.? By asking these questions, scientists determine autism slowly and as an object of science. So this would be a mental or physical disorder that should be objectively studied and then contained also. This is another aspect of it. And when we open up the literature today uh, and the most prevailing theories on autism usually define it negatively. So as a disorder, dysfunction, Mm -hmm. uh, we have this theory of uh, mind blindness, for instance, lack of empathy as as an an organizing principle in autism. Or let's say uh, uh, there is the um, theory that says there's no coherent organization of uh, thought patterns. So there's always this lack of certain qualities that we consider to be normative or normal in a way. So this is the way that scientists objectify autism to my view. And actually, what really got me going to when I was writing this project is actually reading texts written by autistic people themselves. Right. You, you cite a few of them. Yes, absolutely. And you can uh, search the hashtag on Twitter, actually autistic, and find extremely interesting testimonies by, by autistic people. And you don't, you, there's, there's testimonies on Twitter, there are the testimonies on Reddit, and there's mm-hmm. internet forums, and there's so many places to get exposed to ideas and thoughts written by autistic people. There are also books that I also recommend in, in my book, books written by autistic people about autism. 
And what you generally see in these texts is that autistic people describe autism as part of who they are. So yes, something yes. that has to do with their sense of selfhood, with their identity, and not necessarily as a handicap that should right. be eradicated. They describe it as something that is pervasive. It, it, it's all-encompassing. And in this sense, it is described, to my opinion, as something that someone is and not something that someone has. Yes. Right? By the way, I've published a, a few papers and on the topic and when the uh, proofreader or editor of the text go, goes over it, they, they're changing to my text to oh, no. someone who has autism. Because right. I write autistic subject or yes, autistic yes. person and they change it to a person with autism, right? That, but, yeah. but I think it's important to keep right. it that way. It's, it's something that someone is and not something that someone has. Comparable, and I give this example many times to, let's say, type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. yep. If you speak to people that have type 1 diabetes, they say, yes, it's been affecting me since I was a child. It has a deep psychological effect on my being, on my existence, but it doesn't color every aspect of my existence. Uh, so people that have type 1 diabetes might prefer being called person with diabetes rather than a diabetic person. Mm? Right, right. Uh, this I picked up from autistic people, so it's not something that I sort of impose, but I, I just pick up from the discourse that, that I identify. So you see here that autistic people like Temple Grandin, a very famous autistic advocate and, and writer like Jim Sinclair, Donna Williams, we have Daniel Temet. These are very interesting writers, and they all go against the notion of a cure for autism. They're saying, well, I wouldn't choose it even if you let me. Because choosing it would mean losing the person that I am. So what they do is they take the discourse on autism and they push it into the domain of ethics and politics and give mm -hmm. it this ethical flair. And you see movements today like the neurodiversity movement that, you know, they have this, this very interesting discourse that they are promoting uh, about autism as a neurological variant. Anyways, what we can sort of deduce from this discourse is that autism is part of one's self-identity. And in psychoanalytic terms, we call this the ego. Now, in my book, I sort of try to subvert both of these discourse and to suggest a third way. You know, this is always very nice to have that when you write a book. <laughs> so, so I suggest that both the, what we can say, the realist scientific discourse and the normative identity yes. discourse, right? They both fall short of designating the singularity of their object. And what I argue is they do that because they confuse what is subjective about autism with the object of science on the one hand and the ego, which is, the obje which is an object by itself, on the other hand. Right. So what I suggest is that through this dual misrecognition, we can enable a third perspective. And this is the perspective I progress in the book. On the one hand, addressing autism as an entity that we will say something, uh, let's say, we'll speak about it structurally, functionally, we'll try to understand its underlying causality. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we will also address it as a singular mode of being that is linked to autistic identity, but cannot be reduced to it, right? So this is what I do in the book uh, by uh, laying out a theory, 
versed in the teaching of Freud and Lacan. And also I tried to examine some clinical cases that I pick up from the literature that, that I engage with. And it seems like just to look ahead and build off of what you've been saying, it seems like you indicate at the end of your book, this notion that you indicate a number of avenues to explore further, but it does seem like your research now, or at least what you intimate in your book, is going to be linked to this question of identification. Is that correct? Or, or do you want to say some? Because what, what you seem to indicate is based on the literature, whether it be, well, a lot of literature that's not available to the English speaking world, but a lot of the literature that you work through meticulously, this notion that autistic subjects don't necessarily engage in the classical clinical definition of, of identification and forming identifications. Is, is, that, is that something you're still working on or has your, has your research shifted in some way? Do you want to tell us about kind of the future of, of your work? Well, no, that's, that's absolutely correct. And I, I think there's two papers out now on this subject that I published this year on the question of identification. One was particularly on the subject in identification in the mirror stage. It's a paper right. that I, I recently published, the, the autistic mirror stage, okay. one might say. Yeah, w one of the uh, general notions that uh, are sort of agreed upon in the Lacanian orientation is that there is no identification in the sense that we define it when we speak about, let's say, neurotic subjects. Mm -hmm. For uh, Lacan, uh, there are, you can uh, identify two, uh, let's say, prototypical components of the Freudian ego that are achieved in what he calls identification in terms of these constitutive moments for the subject. One he calls imaginary identification and the mm -hmm. other symbolic identification. And what is the uh, general argument is that in autism, we don't see any of them. So in this sense, there is a, a, uh, an effect on ego construction in autism. Right? And um, in my current work, I try to, through the um, elaboration of case studies and autobiographies, I try and identify moments of supplementary identification in the, in the way that autistic people recount their own ego construction, or let's say even their relationships with their body. Is this one of the, I mean, this seemed to be one of the, especially in the, the seventh chapter, you, it did seem like this notion, this question of Throughout the book, this question of um, the sort of the, the siphoning off of jouissance in the other, this question of the real. Is there anything you could say about in the mirror stage, the autistic mirror stage? Is, is it still part of the hypothesis of, of the question of the, the quote unquote real? For example, you uh, you talked about the wolf child and it seems like I forget the uh, maybe the LaFonce where they talk about the wolf child and this question of. There's the scene with uh, the wolf child. He, he gets the paper or, or the, the plastic scissors and tries to enact the sort of the, the real castration. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, is, is, there, is there something about the, um, this question of real identification or would that even be, you know, possible or plausible? Or maybe I'm not even formulating it in the correct way. Well, I think your, your intuition is very uh, strong and correct here. By the way, the name of the paper is uh, The Autistic Mirror in the Real. 
Like okay, that's the, okay. the name of the paper. But yeah, we're delving into serious, serious theory, <laughs> right? In the beginning. So we'll do it. It's, you, you're going to lead me on this journey. So <laughs> just, yeah, you know, the, the real is a very um, tempting concept in Lacanian, in, the, in Lacan's teaching. Uh, it's tempting and it's, it's super interesting. But something that I think is important to remember is that these uh, registers that Lacan talks about, these three registers of imaginary symbolic real, are ways for us to learn something about the psyche, not so much, let's say, philosophical concepts that are there to develop by themselves. They're, let's say, tools through which we can elaborate something about psychoanalysis and, and the psyche without resorting, let's say, to um, Oedipal metaphorical language, for right. instance. Right. Now, the real has several, let's say, uh, several uh, regimes in Lacan or several uh, appearances which are different. And again, this is part of reading Lacan is also acknowledging the fact that we're not talking about a philosophy that starts and ends and is consistent with itself. There are changes and sometimes they're inconsistent. Right. But let's say that let's talk about the real today as as whatever is, let's say, engendered as an exteriority to whatever is inscribed psychically. So it would be something which is not part of reality per se, when we talk about reality as psychic reality, but because it has effects on our reality, we have to hypothesize, let's say it's, uh, maybe existence is not a good word, but existence uh, borrowed from Heidegger, or let's say it is something that has an effect on our reality. Now, Lacan also, when he talks about the real, he also says that, Compared to the symbolic, where we have signifiers which can be distinguished from one another, this is how uh, he describes the symbolic, the real is a register where there is, let's say, no differentiation. Mm -hmm. It is outside of language in the sense that it resists symbolization completely, and in this sense, registers no absence, no lack. Right. Right. So if we think about the real in this way, when we talk about, I'm returning to the subject of identification or the relationship with the body, then when we talk about a body that does not, that in its, in its materialization does not go through the mediation of the symbolic, we are talking about a body that lacks holes that lacks lack in this sense. Because we are, now, we are speaking about psychoanalysis and many times we refer to the body as the libidinal body, as the body that is composed of the libidinal organs. These are the organs uh, cathaxed with libido. They have this existence in the psyche due to this form of marking. Yes, which Freud distinguished, by the way, from the level of ideas. It is the level of the drive that we're talking about. So if a body that goes through the mirror stage, for instance, a neurotic body is a body that is punctured, hold, it has orifices, the oral, the anal, etc. The autistic body is a body in which all of these orifices are plugged. Right. 
And in this sense, we can think of the real as taking part in this identification which constructs the body image and constructs the ego. So we're talking about a, a psychic experience or a psychic reality in which lack is not designated in a way, at least not in a way that we are used to in the psychoanalytic mm -hmm. clinic. And in one way or another, we can say it lacks a demarcation. I don't know if you want to go deeper into this. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what, are the, what are the ways that you describe this question of demarcation and delimitation, right? Yes. Is this is as, as opposed to, um, I think the word is, is a siphoning which yes. I, think, I think the reason why I brought up the real and I have so many questions related on this topic is partly one of the most fascinating parts of the book is you going through this question of language acquisition and this question of, as opposed to neurotic, quote unquote, normal language ac acquisition, where we are castrated and entered into the symbolic, there is this resistance to to castration or there's you could say it's part of the foreclosure that you speak of in the autistic foreclosure where instead of this access by means of signifiers it is a kind of piecing together by by means of signs and you you go a long way into describing how these function differently for lacan right mm -hmm. this question of one, I mean, one of the concepts is this question of, of, of a synthetic other instead of a symbolic other, and this, this notion that piecing together language by means of signs is much different than sort of being immersed in the symbolic. I guess that's, that's kind of where I was, one of the places I wanted to go with opening with the real is precisely this notion that one of the things I was thinking of when you're, when you're talking about how I was thinking of an artificial language like Esperanto, where every sign is independent and linked to only one reference. Would that be, is that ideal similar to this notion of the autistic experience of language? Or is that, is that sort of completely disconnected? Right. So I'm really holding your hand and you're running with me. <laughs> into the fire we're doing it together <laughs> if you'll allow me i'll, I'll try and uh, take a few steps before we uh, yes. we get there to the signs you've started with the question of the entry into language right this is something that uh, people commonly know that uh, autistic children usually don't enter language in a, in, in the age that they're, they're expected to so it either comes later or doesn't come at all, or they pick up some words, but they don't use language in the same way that people are used to. So that's commonly known. The entry into language is a very interesting notion developed in Lacan. There are many uh, paradigms through which he describes it. But I think uh, one that is very, uh, let's say, illustrative or picturesque is the idea that we enter language through, I'll try not to use so many uh, professional terms. I'll try and paint a picture for the listeners. We enter language through a certain dimension that we can associate with its musicality, with its joy, with the fact that there is some pleasure to using language, regardless of the meaning, a particular meaning that it conveys, but just because it can convey meaning. I don't know if you have these memories, but uh, this is something that uh, I can account for myself. I remember as a young boy, enjoying just uh, going uh, somewhere with my parents and half falling asleep 
and their friends are talking and I hear them speaking, I don't know what they're saying, but there's some pleasure in just listening to the mere fact of speaking. And this is not like listening to music or listening to someone, uh, I don't know, bang some pans and pots together. It, it is listening to a speaking being, to a speaking language. There's something else to it. And this aspect of language, Lacan calls la langue. This is playing. It's like lalation. It's the language mm -hmm. that is la la la. It's the, the musical, this aspect of language, which is not, is not, let's say, the meaning per se, but something about it being meaning. If you open James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, you'll see a literary genius implementing la langue. He is creating universally beautiful literary art by abiding to this aspect of language. You read it, it sounds like English, you're convinced <laughs> that it is English, but still the meaning, it is not meaningful in the way that we are used to, right? So usually children enter language through this dimension, right? So it is, it is the sound of language. And this is because, well, the explanation is that Language is not so much, uh, let's say, a set of words that refer to objects in the world. This is not, not a, at least not according to Lacan, and Lacan is uh, basing himself on this form of linguistics that, that is called semiotics from the uh, mid-20th century. The idea is that it is quite strange that I am uttering these sounds at this moment. So they, they are sounds that have no meaning, but you hear them, and you think, you imagine that they actually mean something. And these are just very strange sounds interposed one next to the other. Coincidentally, we speak the same language so we can understand each other. But language is just a set of sounds that at a certain point in history was determined in groups or in these opposi small oppositions. And these small oppositions mean something. Now, it is a fact that it is not a permanent relationship between these sounds and the meanings that they convey because language changes. You know, there are some words in one language that sound the same in the other, but mean something different. So it's not something of the natural order that we're talking here. We're talking about a certain historical, let's say, tying up of the level of these sounds and the meaning that is conveyed in language, right? This is what is called the signifier and the signified, right? The, the sounds, the, the, the sound images even, and the meaning that they convey. So the entry into language is an entry through the signifier, through this dimension of meaningful sounds, regardless of their meaning. And uh, this is how children usually enter language and they pick up these sounds and usually the direction is from the general to the specific. You know, a child picks up a word, he feels, let's say, the word chicken and he now describes a crow as a chicken and uh, a goose as a chicken. And, <laughs> uh, but then you have to explain to him, no, this is, this is a pigeon. And this is an eagle. This is how language usually works for children. With autistic children, we see that they enter language in a different way. They don't come into language through this uh, musical, joyful, in psychoanalytic terms, we say libidinal dimension of language, right? They enter language through the written word. Right? So through the written word, this is what many autistic people attest to. They are able to identify particular 
words which refer to particular objects in the world and they compose a matrix like a dictionary of these words and their reference and through that they make sense of their reality. Now in the book, in chapter 6, I give several explanations as to why that is and how it works. And maybe we'll get into that in a second because I think this is part of what you were asking. Mm -hmm. This is the question of the rejection of the alienation in language and the question of the voice and, and we'll get there. But let's just uh, clarify how do we understand this in terms of signifier and sign, which is something I develop in chapter seven and you've just mentioned. So, so it's important I, I engage with that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say that there's a naive kind of theory of language. And this uh, naive theory of language says that language is just uh, these signs, these words which refer to objects in the world. And when I learned a new word, I can refer to more objects in the world and therefore I develop my linguistic skill and I can know more of the world. The semiotic theory of language or the modern theory of language says that this is not the case. It is not that we have words and referent. Language, in fact, the elements of language, in fact, lack a referent. They have no referent. They only refer to each other. What do I mean here? These bits of sounds with which we build words do not refer to anything in the world, do not refer to anything in the mind, not even a concept. They refer to each other. So when I say the word, the word cat, the sound at, yes, refer one to another, right? And because we are subjects that take part in, let's say, an order of language that is shared among us and we learn it, we, we enter it from a young age, when I hear the sound, meaning is engendered. Hmm? There's a terrific, I think I, I saw this on Instagram, but uh, there's a terrific clip which uh, th there's this... Uh, football team in the background and they're um, sort of chanting a certain chant i'll look it up just so we so people can have it yeah it's a, it's a group of of football fans and they're saying something like that is embarrassing yes and they're repeating this that is embarrassing that <laughs> is embarrassing and it's pretty amazing they they have this list of sentences for instance, Bart Simpson bouncing, or rotating pirate ship, or this isn't my receipt. When you look at the sentence and you listen to it, all of a sudden you hear that. This is the meaning that is engendered. Now it's the same sentence repeated. There is no difference, but the meaning changes according to the sentence that your eyes uh, are viewing. In a sense, it demonstrates this divide between whatever we, we think of as a referent, as a meaning, and the level of the signifier. So, Lacan's psychoanalysis, in general, argues that the, the psyche operates according to these laws that govern the relationships between signifiers. Symptom formation, psychopathology, the direction of the treatment, dream interpretation, all of these and more, all abide by what he defines as a signifier. I was giving a certain idea of what that is and how it operates in the psyche. You know, Lacan famously says, the unconscious is structured like a language made of signifiers. So this is how he views the psyche and this is Lacanian psychoanalysis in a gist. Yeah, it's important to know that. What we see in autism and this is why it's so fascinating from this perspective is, well, this is the hypothesis that I progress in the book, is that 
in the autistic mode of entry into language or in the autistic mode of access to language, we see subjects that don't rely on signifiers or on a language that functions in the way that this kind of language operates, but they rely on something that is akin to this naive form of linguistic, a language composed of signs. A sign, in comparison to a signifier, has a referent. Right? It refers to a concept or an object or an image. Right? And it has a rigid relationship with it. You know, signifiers a relationship with each other and this changes along history and changes over time. And you know, one sound can mean one thing under one context and another thing under another context. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can use the same sentence or the same word, but different intonations, different contexts will change the meaning. But a sign means one thing, right? So what I argue is that autistic language is based on signs. And if we view it in this way, we can understand and explain and, and, and well, help out autistic people in a, mm -hmm. in a better way because we can understand how their language is constructed in, in this sense, how autistic symptoms are constructed, how, oh, as I was saying, dreams, the direction of treatment, etc., etc. So this is the theory of the signifier and the sign. And this is something that is very common in autism. You know, you see uh, children that... Um, they have one word uh, that describes only one object. So, for instance, uh, from a case study that, that I've read, a girl that uses the word girl only to describe herself. Mm. And another girl is not a girl. This is impossible. There is this, this sign girl, and it means her. This is why many autistic people use the definite article. So it's that television and not this abstract concept, television, general concept. This is why autistic language is very, it's very difficult for autistic people to comprehend abstract notions or generalized concepts. They need to do more work. They can. Yes, they can do it, but it doesn't come as naturally as it comes to neurotic subjects. For instance, the concept peace. What's the problem with it? Where can I find a reference to peace in the world? Right? It's, it doesn't exist in the world. We need to understand it abstractly by contextualizing situations in history. Right? So autistic people have to go a different way in order to participate in a discussion on peace. It will work differently because they have a different mode of access to language. One that we can associate with what I call the primacy of the sign rather than the signifier. And one of the ways that one of the I forget the, the name of the author, but she wrote an autobiography, I believe, is she, I think, gives the example of peace in one of her signs is is a dove. And I think the way that you or through her words describe it is these more abstract general concepts or sometimes emotions or affects, one of the ways in which they are provided space in that regime of signs is basically to find an image or an or, or you know in in purse's terms an icon right that that would have a similarity uh, a, a sort of concrete uhness that they can substitute in for them and i thought that was that was one of the fascinating aspects of reading about these modes of as you said the work being done that it can be done and that um all of that is is fascinating and I guess where I would go, I would just check in. Coop, do you, do you have a reaction or um, anything to, that, that you wanted to add? Just briefly to say that I did think that the even just that little 
you know, it, it seems on its surface to be so insignificant relative to the indefinite article article, but it's just, that's just such a well, I just think that's fascinating. And just that one little, most people would sort of overlook that generally, but mm. that has such big, I guess, theoretical implications. Yeah. I, mean, I remember that, that part in the book too. And I think about how in, in A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari, when they talk about multiplicities, they stress the indefinite article and, you know, so like, in terms of Verizon, they say like some grass or as you would say, a television, whereas your point being that that's not necessarily the mode in which autistic individuals experience language or in which that they articulate themselves. Just that notion of the definite becoming the, the mode of concreteness, the mode of, of signs was something that, that stood out to me very clearly. I think too, if I could, if you will indulge me, I, think maybe reading this passage, first of all, I thought this was really fascinating in the context of relative to desiring production, but that, you know, that's another story. But I think this really exemplifies this process too, in, in a sense, but this sort of symptomatology of this, I think is, is super interesting. So a good example of the use of a complex autistic object can be found in Bruno Bettelheim's account of the case of Joey in his book, The Empty Fortress and his paper, Joey, a Mechanical Boy. Joey is an autistic child treated by Bettelheim who builds a machine made out of different objects he collects from his surroundings. What is so intriguing about Joey's case is the fact that he explicitly refers to his body as an auxiliary machine composed of smaller machines, which regulates the electrical currents going through it. Bettelheim notes that in order to eat, Joey has to plug into an electric circuit. In order to drink, Joey has to come in, into contact with a complicated piping system built with straws. Later on, a machine made out of light bulb assists Joey in controlling his bowel movements. Bettelheim describes a successive election of objects that allows Joey to develop other secondary skills such as speaking and regulating emotions. But I think that really kind of concretizes how both that, just what you guys just sort of went through, how this functions linguistically for the autistic subject, just to kind of concretize that and see how that actually kind of works in a sort of real example. I think this, this um, emphasizes an aspect that is stressed in the Lacadian orientation. Uh, you know, we call it uh, that uh, a case-by-case -case perspective or the fact that every subject is singular, there is no analysis which is the same, which is uh, quite um, surprising, especially as a young analyst, you expect every analysis to be sort of this classic case of the person recounting his past, speaking about family, freely associating, sort of getting to these discoveries from point to point. But many cases are not like that. The idea in, in the Lacanian orientation is that the analyst is a versatile object. There is not one type of analysis. And this, this goes against, for instance, many analysts, let's say IPA analysts, which expect analysis to be in a certain way, you know, this mm -hmm. Freudian way, for instance, and sometimes their patients don't comply with that. And they say, well, sorry, I just cannot help you. Maybe you'll need to, to find some other form of, of treatment. So Lacanian, the Lacanian orientation sort of abides by the idea that an analysis can be completely different, completely singular, right? Now, I don't think there is a better example to this than the clinic of autism. 
The clinic of autism is based solely on subjective inventions that are completely unique and make uh, no sense to the person, let's say, in the position of the, of the analyst. The case of Joey is an example. You see here a child that implements his relationship with objects, which are marked, we can say linguistically marked, so they become linguistic objects because their interposition creates a dynamic in his life. He uses them in a way that can affect his body, but also can be preserved, right? And this is, this is the point with language. We have to understand that language is a, a domain of inscription where something is preserved, right? And let's say um, when we imagine the human psyche, we imagine a psyche which necessarily inscribes things that come in into reality, let's say. And uh, when something is, is inscribed, consciously or unconsciously, its effect can be preserved. But what we see in the case of Joey is the use of signs, of linguistic units, outside of, in the world of objects, so not as, let's say, concepts or sounds uh, uttered or in the mind, but in his surrounding with which he composes a machine, this is how Bettelheim calls it, which regulates his, his body, regulates his libidinal excitation and allows mm -hmm. him to go to the toilet, for instance, which is, a, let's say, a problem that is known in autism in general with digestion. Right? So using these linguistic objects, he's, he's able to do so. Now, if we come to an analysis with the predetermined notion of how it should go, there is no way to facilitate, let's say, Joey in this case, because who can know that this is the direction that one will choose to take his engagement with his bowels, right? So I think that the clinic of autism or the, the, the praxis of autism is a praxis that has to be utterly attentive to the inventiveness of the subject. And you know, it's sometimes this repetitive movement done with a stick or with sand or this sound or, or a touch or, and instead of trying to know in advance what is adaptive behavior, what is inadaptive behavior and sort of try and extinct or extinguish these behaviors that we believe are not useful. And this is, Taylor, what you've mentioned earlier as the ABA method, the applied behavioral analysis, the behavioral perspective. The idea is to be attentive to these behaviors see if they are useful for the subject, and if they are, see if, if they can be generalized, right, or constructed together into something that the subject can actually use and through them gain more freedom and satisfaction in their lives. So yes, as we see here in the case of Bettelheim, sometimes an analysis, and we, we can say it's a oriented it has an analytic orientation, but I think the best way to call this is a treatment. Mm -hmm. The way that the treatment is led by the subject and not by the analyst. That's an interesting reversal of the, the subject supposed analytic, to know, yeah. that the analyst is supposed to function as the subject is supposed to know. And here, as you're, as you're saying very clearly, that Joey is the one that, that takes on that role. And, and Luckily, I mean, like what's interesting is the the outcome of the treatment is that he's Joey's able to use this singular knowledge that he's literally constructed out of the machines around him to become an electrical electrical engineer. I mean, you, you yes. say a little bit about that, and and so there there is this is one of the the ways to facilitate, right? Is to sort of lead them on that path and let them. 
let them lead you, I guess, as the as the analyst. Exactly, and and you've noted the fact that is is also common that sometimes these obsessions, what might be better called special interests, mm-hmm. uh, that autistic people develop, they sometimes are developed further into, let's say, socially. Um, valuable we're now entering domain of what is socially valuable and capitalism etc but let's say something that can score you a job yes, yes. so sometimes right. they they develop to that but again the point is that this is not necessarily the direction of the treatment not mm-hmm. every autistic subject will will want to take it to that direction mm-hmm. for instance a question of uh, partnership of love sexuality there is no known end point to an analysis in these terms and a subject may choose to uh, invest himself in uh, developing social skills and gaining access to the social bond or not or choose to invest themselves in these interests in these special interests that that are are particularly tailored for his use and not for his participation in the social bond so this is the general idea there is no there is no particular endpoint and there is no particular praxis which has to be imposed on the subject utter attentiveness is required at least uh, th- this is my view when when working with autistic uh, subjects i had a tangent that i don't know if we want to entertain but this quote very much put schraber back into my mind and it's interesting too that you mentioned i actually didn't realize that there was a sort of correlation with um digestive issues and autism actually but i think it is sort of interesting in that way that wasn't schraber doesn't schraber sort of lament this inability to shit yeah he he does he concocts different scenarios where right, it's yeah either and... either the lavatory is always occupied <laughs> yes. when he needs to right exactly or or that um, the sunbeams, you know, demiraculate right. the the shit as it's. There's all these, but yes, that that's that's definitely something that at least he mentions in, in in his own memoirs. But Freud himself takes particular note of it, and it's interesting. The what is it? I believe it's chapter three when Leon, you're going through the mechanisms of repression and foreclosure. Perhaps it's chapter four with Lacan. You you do point out that. Specifically in seminar three on the psychosis, Schreiber does become one of the topics. And of course, in Anti-Oedipus, you know, Schreiber is like the touchstone, I think, for their for the categorization of schizophrenia and this question of desiring production. But I guess it, it is up. I suppose, Cooper, are you, are you asking this question if if Schreiber is showing some... My contribution is to do uh, speculative heresy. And so... Um... <laughs> It just brought to mind, so I just thought it might be an interesting little thread that kind of sutures together kind of these different threads of Lacan and Deleuze and Guattari. Another element here that I think is fascinating in that regard is that the whole Deleuze and Guattari thing of no metaphors and how that relates to the real and, you know, I mean, that discussion and the way that these signs are utilized as a sort of linguistic machine or something like that. I just found that sort of an interesting, I don't know, co-evolution perhaps or... I just yes. wanted to kind of note that. So I think these are fascinating questions. I'm really enjoying this this talk with you guys because we're really uh, delving into some complex corners of of, <laughs> of this whole field, and I usually don't have the chance to right. to get so serious. Oh, nice. uh, so that's great. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, you are correct, Cooper. We do see um, these uh, evidence to to the an experience of bodily fragmentation in the case of Schreber. This is what. Uh, 
Lacan was describing as the effect of the onset of psychosis, mm -hmm. uh, because in psychosis we have uh, two causal aspects. There is a structural causality and a contingent causality in the Lacanian orientation. So the structural causality is uh, what happens in the beginning. Let's say what structures a subject as psychotic. And if someone is psychotic, a subject is psychotic, um, even before there are, there is evidence for psychotic mm -hmm. symptoms. Uh, psychotic, psychosis usually onsets uh, at 18, they say 18 to 30 in the uh, psychology books, right? So what we see as a, a structural Structural causality, a subject is structured as, as psychotic, and then a contingent causality as a certain event in life, a certain change in life, sometimes it's puberty, sometimes it's uh, finishing school, getting married, having a child, uh, something that sort of puts, puts whatever the subject has with great effort achieved in constructing in terms of the subject's grasp of reality, this is put into a test and uh, at that point where let's say life brings you too close to the whole in this organization in this explanatory theory then there's a risk of the onset of autism and what we see as symbolic disintegration what freud called a cataclysm the end of the world this is what we usually see in movies as a psychotic breakdown but what is also part of this symbolic disintegration is a dismantling of drive functioning. Mm. We can say because the symbolic is going through a disintegration, the fixations achieved through symbolic inscription are also put in risk. And in this sense, we see changes in, in experience of the body. This is a sort of a Lacanian taxonomy, which is uh, <laughs> already a crime to say, but uh, <laughs> you say that in psychosis, there is schizophrenia and paranoia. There's also melancholia, but the distinction between paranoia and schizophrenia is that what happens after dr the drive, uh, drive functioning is uh, disturbed in psychosis, in the onset of psychosis, the drive stimuli, uh, what Lacan calls jouissance, in the case of paranoia, it returns in the big other. So it returns in the world of the world outside and in the television that in the CIA that's plotting against me and all of these sets of meaning where other people are situated. And in schizophrenia, it returns in the body. This is where we experience a sort of dismantling of the body. So what we, we see this phenomenon in psychosis and in psychosis, there is an attempt at reconstruction and this is what we see in Schreiber's delusion. This is how Freud and Lacan describe delusional formations as an attempt at a cure, an attempt at stabilization. And through these imaginary theories and delusions, the subject sometimes is able to construct uh, a stable uh, relationship with the body again. This you can read in literature where, let's say, at least in the, in the Lacanian literature, where you see patients or analysts that construct a certain theory about their body. Uh, I've read a case about a relationship with uh, food uh, supplements, for instance, which is not does not make any medical sense. But through this regime and the theory that revolves it, the subject gains a certain stabilization in terms of the schizophrenic effect on the body. So this is what you see in psychosis. Now in autism, we also see a disturbance in drive functioning way earlier than in psychosis. We, we see it quite earlier. And we can also, let's say in the book, I provide some 
a glimpse into what I think is the difference between these two forms of disturbances. Yeah. But what we can say for sure is that the way that this disturbance is treated is different than in psychosis. In psychosis, we see delusional formations, and in autism, we see a leaning on what, uh, Taylor, you've mentioned is the synthetic other. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah a certain supplement to the lack of a place of inscription, to the lack of, let's say, a place where signifiers are inscribed. The synthetic other is a matrix of signs. And through the acquisition of signs and a conscious association between signs and the effect that they have on the body, as we see in the case of Joey, the subject is able to gain a certain stabilization, to gain a body image, to, and to, and to be able to, to sort of get the drive in into a, uh, a functioning modality. Both of these attempts are, are different, and I think they are qualitatively different. This kind of gets back to why, just with the question of Schreber and, and just some certain similarities, why perhaps for the longest time, as we kind of said earlier, autism was sometimes known as childhood psychosis. But as you said, and you make clear, the onset's different. And what I think is, a very fascinating hypothesis that I think you demonstrate very well is the difference between foreclosure and psychosis and foreclosure and, and autism. And I guess, obviously, that, that scope and that trajectory goes throughout the book. And that's one of, one of your main theses. For the listeners, where, would you, where would the best place to start be? I, I don't want you to have to like re- hash the whole book because honestly if the listeners are interested it, it, it's definitely worth taking the time to to see your arguments and their trajectory play out is there maybe a a more uh, abbreviated version that you would want to go into to, to continue this discussion about the the differences i know you already kind of laid out some of it so yes i think it's uh, we're, we're segueing right there quite uh quite uh, easily. There is a distinction, but as we see here, there are huge similarities on the level of symptomatic manifestation. And I, was all, I already said that earlier. This is problematic. The, it causes, I think, a lot of misdiagnoses of autism and psychosis in both ways, that sometimes a person is diagnosed as autistic, but actually would benefit from a treatment that is more on the in the direction of his psychosis and the other way around and this is something that freud himself particularly discusses quite early in his career and uh, he says that when we look at neurosis and psychosis the let's say we can identify two aspects to to its existence there is a structuring aspect and then a compensatory aspect mm -hmm. uh, the first one is what he calls let's say repression very early on and this is sort of the constitutive exclusion that sets the mind in place that congeals a certain psyche in a, in, a, in a particular form and after this element let's say in the case of of neurosis it is an idea or disagreeable uh, impulse. And uh, after this has been excluded, there's a certain compensatory stage where we see a symptomatic formations, which attempt to compensate for whatever has been excluded. And he said that on the level of symptom formation, we might confuse neurosis and psychosis. And it's, it's problematic to base our distinction on that. He already says that. And he says that we must base on this, our distinction 
on the structuring mechanism, on this first aspect, what he calls repression, and then in cases of psychosis, he sometimes calls rejection or disavowal, and there's the German word that Lacan picked up called Verwerfung, that was translated to foreclosure. And what Freud says is, this is where you need to search for the distinction. This is what I do in the book. I give sort of a very, I very slowly, and I try to do this very comprehensively, present Freud and Lacan on the difference between neurosis and psychosis in terms of their structuring mechanisms. And this is repression and foreclosure, right? And I demonstrate according to this that, well, they are distinct, clearly. And I'm not inventing the wheel here because this is quite agreed upon. But what I do is I try and identify the structuring mechanism in autism. And by giving a structural analysis of this mechanism, its functioning, uh, I do this by situating it in the Freudian model in relation to what Freud called primal repression. Mm -hmm. And I demonstrate that it functions on a different level than foreclosure in psychosis. I then provide several ideas as to what is the object of autistic foreclosure to the listeners that know Lacan or listen to your great episode on seminar three of Lacan. <laughs> they know that in psychosis, the object of foreclosure is the signifier of the name of the father, right? That is foreclosed in psychosis according to Lacan. And I demonstrate that in autism, it is not the signifier of the name of the father. It is a certain linguistic element that is even can be viewed as the precursor to this signifier. Yes. And I provide several frameworks through which we can understand this object. So this is another level which I distinguish them. So that would be the level of functioning, the object on which foreclosure operates, and then the effect that foreclosure has on the mode of access to language. And by using these three, sort of demonstrating these three pillars in psychosis and autism, I come to demonstrate that there is a structural distinction between the two when we assess them on the level of their structuring mechanism. And this is sort of what Freud sort of asked us to do. Now that after we have this distinction and we sort of base it structurally, I explain the level of symptom formation by using this theory, right? So this is how the book goes. And this is why I develop a theory of autistic foreclosure. This is how I call it. It's not very original because foreclosure, Lacan uses it for psychosis. But I did use it because of the conflation between autism and psychosis. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to disregard it. Yes, I, I wanted to engage it directly, especially in terms of the theory of psychosis and the signifier of the name of the father and sort of demonstrate that, well, it is a foreclosure because foreclosure is an eradication of something from the psyche. Repression is an inscription of something in the unconscious. It's not its eradication, but foreclosure is what Freud associated with a rejection of a piece of reality. It is something that a piece of reality is cut out and does not exist anymore. So in autism, it is also a foreclosure. Yes, it is not a repression, but it's a foreclosure of something else uh, on a different level with different effect. Yes, this is what I try to demonstrate. It's interesting that you, what you said about quote unquote, not being original, because you did mention this notion of, of resistance from, from others who may not want to dissociate autism from under the umbrella of psychosis, other, other practitioners. And I'm wondering if part of the negotiation of that is to still keep the, the operative term, but to show that it does function differently. Was there a kind of 
practical choice in that matter? Or is it, or is it as simple as you said that it, that it was just a, perhaps there's just not necessarily a, a better term. I mean, even Freud himself, it's Lacan who really formalizes it, right? Cause yeah. Freud himself, even though in the Wolfman case, you know, you might have a example. That's, that's the one the Lacan latches onto to really try to singularize foreclosure. But Freud himself uses the term kind of loosely, at least if we look at um, the definition that Laplanche and Pontelis provide in, in the language of psychoanalysis, that he, he doesn't necessarily formalize it, it to the same extent as, as Lacan does. Absolutely. And, well, he uses Verwerfung in one, one point, but then Verleugnung in another point. So we have this avowal and rejection. For Freud, I think you can identify, this is what I suggest in the book, three moments in Freud's mm-hmm. engagement with psychosis. And they're all different. You know, one is a rejection of reality, foreclosure. The other is a regression into pathological right. narcissism and uh, the other one is a rejection of a piece of reality in terms of the id and the ego right. and so they're all different perspectives i don't think they they are consistent but i think they have they interrelate they interact mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yes i think the choice of this word as you said it's practical but it's also ethical in the mm-hmm. sense that you know we have so many new concepts just appearing sort of these very catchy new concepts and i think that well, before we go on and, and conceptualize something that sort of in a separate way, we need to engage with the literature, mm-hmm. to engage with, with what there is already. And I think there's a, a value to it. There's a value to think about this mechanism and autism in relation to psychosis. There's a value because I think it, it is important to understand the latter in comparison to the former. A lot of food for thought, um, <laughs> Cooper. I, I don't want to. I don't want to hog the oh no the spotlight. I'm just trying to make sure uh, take a breath. Was there was there something? I know you you're the one with the with the notes and you're running the show, but I'm sort just of, yeah. I, I'm excited and and uh, I have a lot of places I can go. Well, but I, don't, I mean, I, I don't think wanna... I've always been fascinated, or at least recently, in Lacan's topology. So I don't know if maybe going into the Taurus and sort of that might be something we could hop into. Or another aspect is this primordial signifier that I'd maybe like to flesh out. I don't know. I've been having this idea that I keep repeating that we've been discussing. You know, we've been working through anti-Oedipus together as well as Baudrillard's symbolic exchange in death. So, and Lacan too. So this is sort of all in my brain. And I kind of cribbed this from Baudrillard a bit, but I have this aphorism that's the first simulation is the name of God that I've been kind of harping on lately. And so I don't know if there's a relation to this primordial signifier or anything like that that would kind of engender discussion. But well, I thought I thought if anyone has a preference there, but those were the two threads to piggyback off of of that. Leon, you wonderfully explain the the know and the name of, of the father. And perhaps that that would be part and parcel of this question of the constitutive exclusion of the the primordial signifier in relation to how that works into these different singular mechanisms for um, yeah, that's good. for neurosis, psychosis, and autism too. Do you want to say something about that before we get into the to the Taurus or or yeah, you know which right. is, that's a good, good I think I think that would at least set yeah. some of this up. Right. So I I, I I really liked how you I thought it was one of the clearest expositions of this of what Lacan is getting at when he describes the the role of the name of the father. Hmm. 
Well, so we're talking about the name of the father. The name of the father is um, Lacan's way of re-engaging with the Oedipal vocabulary mm -hmm. when discussing his, um, let's say, uh, linguistic turn or dis discussing his linguistic reconceptualization of destructuration of uh, psychosis and you see this in in seminar three by the way it's um, you know the, the, it's the name father it's called the name of the father and it's true it has some resonance and also makes some sense I'll, I'll get to this in a way but we have to understand the context the historical context because a lot of people say that Lacan is quite paternalistic in terms of his focus on the father and uh, on the phallus for instance. But you have to understand that at that time in the world of psychoanalysis, psychoanalysts were very much uh, involved only with mothers. The theory was uh, revolving the mother and the relationship between mother and child. And you see that in Kleinian psychoanalysis, etc. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest complaints, by the way, on the psychoanalysis of autism, especially in France, is that psychoanalysts blame the mother. So there's this term, refrigerator mother, cold mother, etc. So we blame the mothers. And Lacan at that time was going against the grain. He was saying, well, it's not that, the, that this important moment in life, important moment in the structuration of the psyche is mother and child, and this is what is at stake. No, the father intervenes from the get-go. So that's the first point that we need to remember that Lacan was actually, um, in, if you ask me, quite of a rebel in terms of insisting that the father is also to blame. Mm. <laughs> uh, same with the phallus, you know, and he's, he's provocative by using these terms, but for Lacan, the phallus is not the penis. Mm. It is a signifier. So again, he goes into theory, psychoanalytic theory, which revolves around the penis and around the, the boy's penis and its effect on psychic structuration. And he says, yes, the phallus is very important as a signifier. You know, it's sort of like giving us the second half of the sentence. So this is something that's important to, to remember. Now, there's so much to say about this. And uh, as you've mentioned, there's the nom du père in French and there's the nom and the nom, and the, I think um, Bruce Fink, who's a, one, I think, of the most prominent Lacanian interpreters and translators, has, has a wonderful elaboration of this distinction in French. And we see here a, a distinction that has to do with the Oedipal vocabulary. And what we see in the nom du père is a rearticulation of the Oedipus complex, not as a drama, Mm. Not as a psychological drama have taking place in the mind of the child, but as a structure. A structure that has to do with functions and not with actual people. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think it's important to read the Oedipus complex as an illustration, as a metaphor, as a demonstration of a structure. I don't think that babies in their minds, in their little minds, plan to kill their fathers and have sex with their mothers. I don't right. think they think that. I don't think it's a psychological experience. Yes, this mm -hmm. is the first thing. The second thing is that it's important to abstract the members of the family, let's say, from the function of the father, the, the mother, the child, the phallus in this drama. It is not the actual father that Lacan talks about when he mm -hmm. talks about the, the name of the father, nor the actual mother 
when he talks about the mother. And this makes a lot of sense because, you know, children today have single mothers, single father, two mothers, two fathers, no father, la la la. There are many constellations and still we see children sort of getting, getting through the Oedipus complex. So I think it would be problematic to, one, see the Oedipus as a psychological experience, two, see it as a story about mothers and fathers. It is about functions. Now, in the Oedipus complex, in the version of, in Lacan's version, which is developed and presented in many seminars and has many faces, we have a certain, let's say, hypothesized relationship between mother and child. This is the hypothesized uh, dyadic uh, relationship that for Lacan does not take place any time after the formation of the subject or after the structuration of the psyche. It's a mere hypothesis that about a, a point that is mystical. Is not mm -hmm. actually part of the, of the psychic uh, construction. And he says that the father intervenes in the story by presenting, by putting a, presenting a certain prohibition, mm -hmm. a no, that, that is translated in other terms as a, excluding a, a certain sum of libidinal excitation from the child's economy. Right? In the Oedipus myth, we call it the prohibition of incest. But it is a, let's say, a primordial negation, a primordial exclusion of a sum of, of libido, sum of jouissance, and this is what the father introduces, the no, the no. But in the Oedipus, we also know that there are certain identifications ha taking place and that to uh, work through the Oedipus, to go through the Oedipus, the child has to identify with the position of the father. And in this sense, this is the father's name, his legacy. Mm -hmm his authority. But again, we don't understand this as the father himself, the father figure in the family. We understand this as symbolic authority. So the Oedipus is completed when the subject takes on itself the authority of the symbolic to mediate its libido, its results, to mediate its enjoyment. Yes. So it is through the symbolic that we can gain enjoyment. This enjoyment will necessarily be castrated, again, in Oedipal terms, but in other terms, meaning it will be demarcated. It will have mm. a limit it will be limited, it will happen within language. We have fun, we enjoy, we, we get, gain satisfaction in language. So this is the, the Oedipal story, right, that, that we see in, in Lacan's rendition of the name of the father. By the way, he's, he's basing himself on Freud. Again, he's, mm -hmm. not, he's not inventing the wheel here. Uh, you know, Freud had this uh, theory of the Wahrnehmungszeichen. It's a very long word. Okay. But this is the first registration of perception, according mm -hmm. to Freud. And Freud says that in order for memory to be organized into conscious subjective history, initial registration of perception that is inaccessible to consciousness has to take place. And Lacan addresses this in linguistic terms and he analogously claims that in order for the symbolic order or for language to provide a coherent basis for the inscription of subjective reality, an initial instatement of what we can call a primitive form of signifying material that is inaccessible from the vantage point of the subject's signified reality has to be affirmed. And this is the what Lacan calls the pure signifier that is distinct from meaning. It doesn't have a literal meaning. It, it not depends on meaning, but is the source of meaning. It is the point of origin of symbolization. And if we view the psyche as a semantic network, 
and the, let's say, the symbolic order as a chain of signifiers, signifier of the name of the father, the primordial signifier is a signifier that all other signifiers relate to, and in this sense, it preserves the consistency in their relationship, and also makes their relationship be transmissible in the intersubjective domain. It is, let's say, at a certain point in Lacan's teaching, this, the name of the father is one form of shared delusion, mm. right? The name of the father is a shared delusion among neurotic subjects that there is consistency to the symbolic, that there is a universal meaning. And through the access point to this excluded, repressed signifiers, we can have this talk today, for instance, between all of us, right? In the beginning for Lacan, this is the, the way that to participate as a subject in the social bond. Later on, it is only one way. It is only mm. one mm. delusion, and then we see Lacan's seminar, the names of the father, not in the plural, not the name of the father. Right? So it's, it's sort of a, what, a lodestone or a, a keystone, if you're thinking of an arch that kind of, it's funny, it's kind of like at the last instance, it's kind of completing the whole web, right? Yes, exactly. And Lacan gives examples from set theory and uh, mm. to, to explain that, but she gives it sort of and uses mathematics to, to illustrate this very abstract notion of an element that is excluded from the series. And by it being the only element excluded, right, the yeah. series gains a consistency because all of its elements have a relationship with it. So in this sense, the name of the father is what preserves the consistency of the symbolic, what guarantees a certain, the laws that govern the interrelations right. between signifiers. And in psychosis, we see this signifier foreclosed. And this is why the symbolic is not sort of this universal domain of coherent meaning, but is more composed of islands of, of consistency, islands of meaning that are sometimes at a risk of collapsing. This kind of gets back to just really quickly, since we're on psychosis for the moment, and what I liked about your way of bringing in Schraber to illustrate the as you put it, the, the sort of intersection between the, uh, what the, the constitutive, is it the constitutive causality behind psychosis and the contingent, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 it, and it seemed like in our, when, when Cooper and I discussed Schraber, one of the things that we kept coming back to in terms of uh, how Schraber compensates, right, with his symptoms, with becoming woman, with, it's this notion that, he is unable to become 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 a parent, become a father, right? His his wife, either his wife is barren or he's shooting blanks. It's one of those things, but it that always seemed to be, at least Freud weaves it in as one of the essential elements in this notion that kind of Fleshig is his, you know, his uh his doctor and you know, I know Freud converts him with or complains him with God, but I always kept coming back to the the wife having the picture of the doctor because he had cured him once. And one of the contingent causalities that you bring up and that Lacan points out is is precisely, as you said, it's it's sort of coming too close, right, to the the horror of the real, yeah, yeah, or the horror in the symbolic or something or whatever it is that that one of the things that causes the cataclysm the end of the world for, for Schreiber is, is perhaps this, this failure at paternity 
almost literally, I forget exactly how you put it. I was looking for it, but but I know you allude to it in the sections on, on foreclosure. It's a putting into question of symbolic authority. And you're mentioning the uh, notion of fatherhood, of paternity, and not for nothing. Yes, because in, in Lacan, as I was saying, it is not the actual father which is at stake, it is the paternal function. Mm-hmm. Yes. In, in this sense, I'll say something that might sound a little funny. You know, the, the idea, the neurotic delusion that we have fathers. If we read this in this way as the paternal function, as the authority of the symbolic rather than actual father. So the delusion that we have fathers is a symbolic, is a symbolic anchor point mm-hmm. in neurosis. And, you know, it is very strange. Today we have genetic testing. It's true. This is a different story. But, you know, in the past, there was no actual way to know that someone is your father. Yes. There is no way to, to be sure. Uh, you know, there, there were some people, I, I think Freud talks about it, that the women go out to the uh, forest and uh, dance around and they return impregnant. It is one thing to know that you are a, the son or daughter of your mother, Because you come out of her body. There's no question about it, right? You come out of her body. We see it. That that is for sure. But who is your father? There's no actual way to know. And in this sense, you see how in the... uh, in, in, let's say, in Western culture, for instance, the insistence of the father to keep his name, to Mm -hmm. keep the last name, to provide the child with the last name, shows you that paternity, that fatherhood, is a strictly symbolic function. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a real correlate, let's say, in comparison to, to motherhood. So paternity, fatherhood is a symbolic function, and in this sense, based on symbolic authority. And when we see in, in Schreber, we see uh, questions uh, pertaining to fatherhood, let's say, reason, we can say that what we see here are questions of symbolic authority. And because mm-hmm. there is no name of the father for Schreber, he does not share the delusion of that we all have fathers, yes? In this sense, his symbolic is put into risk. And in his case, it does deteriorate. It does. uh, Interesting. And so that triggers the becoming woman as a sort of, almost like a machine almost, I think. Well, in a certain sense, the the compensation is becoming mother because if the world has ended (laughs) and all the the humans are, are are just puppets, fleeingly improvised men, then the compensation is if he failed at being father oh, he, or right. failed at the fatherhood, he the can give birth function, to, yeah. to a new humanity. And then, as you said, Leon, there's no question of, of motherhood, right? So there is something about, again, it's the symbolic compensation, so to speak. Yes, and, and notice in Schreber that he speaks about emasculation, right? This is uh, uh, what, uh, what he invents. This is his invention. This, in, in the end, this is his key for stabilization, uh, what is called entmannung, translated, yeah. translated in many ways into English. But what he emphasizes is that he does not wish to become a woman for other men. He says that in the book. He wants to be the wife of God. This is the woman. Yes. This is the woman with a capital W and a definite article. It is not a, <laughs> a woman, right? So his, his solution is quite grandiose. It has to do with his megalomania. Mm-hmm. And this is, let's say, the, the um, kernel of his delusional construction that aims at the universal. 
he doesn't uh, want to become just a woman, dress up like a woman and enjoy life like a woman, you know, enjoy that. He will become the wife of God. So this is a his unique psychotic solution. And we have to pay attention here that it is not that the movement towards feminization in general is a sign of psychosis. We cannot say that any kind of practices that entail looking like a woman, enjoying like a woman, etc., is a notion of psychosis because the major point here is to become the wife of God. Yes. Not to become a woman, right? Mm-hmm. I think this could be a, tra- uh, a point of transition to one of the most important, well, there's a lot of concepts that are important to the, to, to your, to the trajectory of your, of your argument, but this question of becoming the wife of God entails being a constant source of enjoyment for God. And I'm wondering if that can be a way perhaps to begin discussing this notion about, forget exactly the verb you use, but it's this notion of providing, yielding, I think, yielding a sum of jouissance to the other, the the big other. Yes. I think the rim is such a huge topic. This might be, let's say, the major conceptual sort of conceptualization that I develop in the book. But yes, the yielding leads to it. So let's uh, let's start with the yielding, and let's see what we think, and maybe we can uh, we can think about meeting again. So um, the yielding. This uh, was something that we almost touched on a long time ago when we talked about the entry into language, mm-hmm. and this is uh, again another myth let's say, that Lacan presents, that he develops later in his paper, The Signification of the Phallus, into the dialectics of need, demand, and desire. And this is also developed in Seminar 5 later. So when we think about the human baby, and this is a myth, I'm telling a myth, but it illustrates a point. So when we think about the human baby, they are born kind of half-baked. You know, this is what they say. They say like the first month is the month they had, they, they should have spent inside but mm-hmm. they couldn't. There's some evolutionary explanations to that. But anyways, babies are quite useless when they're born compared to farm animals, which are born and start just walking around eating mm-hmm. stuff. It's quite amazing to see. Babies are born where they're incapable of doing anything. If you leave a baby alone, it will die. You have to take care of it. Now, again, we go back to this idea of this hypothesized state of unity where the baby is in the womb and Mm -hmm. all of the baby's needs are answered immediately. There's no pain. There's no suspension of satisfaction. This is, of course, hypothetical because even in the womb, the fetus experiences some problems, let's say. Uh, But let's say this is a hypothetical state and the baby is born. The baby is born and all of a sudden it's not connected to the mother's body and its instinctual needs are not immediately answered. That's a problem. The caretaker cannot know when the baby is hungry all the time and guess without the baby sort of giving some hints. So the baby needs to be quite resourceful in communicating these needs to the caretaker. And this is a moment, we can say, is a moment where the baby or the subject enters language. It enters language when something of the level of the instinctual need has to be articulated so that another will acknowledge it. This is when the instinctual need is articulated in a demand. And a demand, the first demand is a cry. And it's Mm -hmm. 
you know, the baby cries and this is a demand for the satisfaction of a need. Now, what is interesting about this demand is that the baby takes on itself a demand that is articulated in a domain that is comprehensible to the other. He doesn't invent his own secret language or mm -hmm. his own secret signs to do it. He takes on himself a language which preceded him, a means of communication which existed before him and in this sense constitutes the caretaker or the other as the place in which its needs can be answered, right? So there's many things happening there. Now, what Lacan emphasizes is that when a need, which is, you know, this um, force, this vivacity that is sort of complete in the body, yes, when it is articulated in language, it necessarily reduces something or loses something of this initial vivacity that has to do with the level of the instinctual need or in the body. Any articulation of a need is always a reduction. There is always a loss. And in this sense, what we say in the Lacanian orientation is that by yielding the, this vivacity to language, to the place of the other, and articulating it in the form of a demand that can be answered by the other, the baby necessarily forfeits something of this need that will never be articulated. So entry into language in this way, entry into language necessarily entails a loss. This is what Lacan calls alienation and also castration. In order to enter into language, in order for the body to be designated, in order for the need to be expressed, something has to be lost. The demand never fully articulates the level of need, and we see that many in many places in our lives. Yes, Language has a limit. This is also the precursor for desire, but we won't get into this today. The idea that one of, I think, the most talented French authors in terms of Lacanian psychoanalysis of autism, Jean-Claude Maléval, and he's a colleague, and he also wrote the foreword to the book. So he argues that this yielding of excitation or yielding of jouissance, we can say, is experienced as traumatic for everybody. Yes, this is the first trauma of the entry into language. But for the autistic subject, it is experienced as an extreme trauma, as a brutality, as a mutilation. And in this sense, what we see in autism is a rejection of yielding this response to the other. So this is a rejection of the other as the place from which my needs will be answered. It is a rejection of the other as the place which can carry my being in terms of libido, in terms of jouissance. It is a rejection of the other as the place where the object will be inscribed again, mm -hmm. the object lost. Yes? And it is a rejection of the other as a, a, the locus of signifiers. Right? So what we see in autism is a refusal to yield jouissance to the other at this very initial structuring moment. Right, this is what Jean-Claude Maleval argues. And what we see, well, because of this refusal, there are effects on the level of the drive functioning, on the level of, let's say, linguistic functionality. And, well, there are really dramatic alterations in the way that, you know, this subject-other relationship is established. So this is what Maleval progresses. And he... He also develops the idea that there is a way 
that the autistic subject compensates and supplements for this particular refusal. And this is something that I developed in the last chapter in terms of the rim. Mm-hmm. Right? This is an interesting psychoanalytic concept and uh, we see it presented by Lacan in his theory of drive functionality. And it's extremely interesting and there's a large section of the book that engages with that. And then when I try to develop this in terms of autism, in terms of, let's say, the supplementary action that a, a subject can take, I uh, conceptualize this in terms of the neo-rim. Mm-hmm. So it is a not the rim that we know from Freud or Lacan early work on drive functionality, but a new concept. So this is a truly new concept in the book, the neo-rim. And what I do is I try to identify different modalities of this construction in the way that autistic subjects treat their own symptoms, treat themselves. And the idea is that if we can identify these modalities, we can also think of particular modalities of practical implementation in terms of the treatment of autism. So uh, just to uh, keep the listeners edge of their seats and we might might, uh, return to this in a different talk. I talk about the absence of the rim, talk about the protective rim, the dynamic rim, and all of these entail different forms of, of construction and different forms of practical intervention in the treatment of autism. And that's something that we'll have to delve deeper into with you, hopefully next week, if we can have you back, because you're right, that, that's that's a good cliffhanger, because I right, think yeah. so, so much, I mean- We're hanging so, on the rim, the edge. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, so, so much, so much of, the, of, your, of your work does hinge on this point. And so it, it, is, it is the perfect cliffhanger, the rim hanger. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And we can start with the whole like drive circuit and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah, it could great. be very interesting. We will, we will yield you <laughs> back to the, to the, the big other. <laughs> Amazing. We'll, we'll, we will be in touch. Okay. Leon, thank you. Thank you so, so much for your time. I'm even more excited than I was before we started. So I'm going to, I'm going to carry that that jouissance, that stimulus uh, to, next, <laughs> to, next, to next time. It's really fun talking to you guys. It's oh, not like any interview that I've had so far. It's always awesome. like very basic. Right. Why did you write the book? What do you say about yeah. this? But you guys are informed and, and your questions and sort of interventions are also very informed. So it's interesting for me as well. Awesome. We're trying to get as much out of you as we can. We, right. we, got, we got the book. Now we get to, now we get the real. We'll let you go and, um, okay. yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll be emailing you shortly. Terrific. Okay. So until soon then. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Bye. No problem. Bye. 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 And that will be this installment of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Bye, y'all. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the queen, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
follow. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people as in the clockwork orange. <laughs>